I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together. I've got some real estate here in my bag. So we bought a pack of cigarettes and this is why. As we bought into Greyhound in Pittsburgh Michigan seems like a dream to me now It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw I've come to look for America No, my guest today on the program is not Paul Simon uh, nor is it Art Garfunkel. They wanted to come on, but I told them I was busy. So no, no Simon and Garfunkel on the program today. But let me tell you who my guest is. My guest today on the show is U.S. Congresswoman Jackie Spear. Now, you're probably wondering, why did the Congresswoman want to come on Stereo Embers, the podcast? Well, that's an easy answer. It turns out that the Congresswoman is a huge fan of Bauhaus. So when she found out that I'd talked to David Jay, she was like, oh, I got to get on that show. Finally, there's a place where I can talk about my love of The Sky's Gone Out uh, and other goth B-sides. No, that's not the story. The story is uh, this was a live event recorded to promote Jackie Spears' new book, Undaunted. It was recorded at the Montclair Presbyterian Church in Oakland in front of a live audience. Uh, and the whole event was sponsored by A Great Good Place for Books, also in Oakland. It was a great night, and it was a great conversation, and I'm not going to give you my normal uh, biographical overture uh, that I usually do, uh, because in the case of Congresswoman Spear, her biographical information comes out in the conversation. So I'm just going to tell you a couple of things I think would be important for you to know before you hear this chat, so here they are. A San Francisco native, Jackie Spear has been in politics since 1978. She got her start as a congressional staffer for Congressman Leo Ryan, and since then, she's never looked back. Here's just a couple of highlights from her resume. She's been a congresswoman for California since 2008. She was a California state senator from 1998 to 2006, and she served in the California State Assembly from 86 to 96. She's a survivor of the 1978 Guyana Airport firefight with Jim Jones's henchmen and... Politically, she's an advocate for strict gun laws, women's rights, environmental protections, and LGBTQ equality. Her new autobiography is called Undaunted, and it's a stirring tale of survival, strength, and resolve. It's a powerful read, and she's a powerful woman, and it was uh, pretty humbling to be sitting across from her. It was a pretty special night, and I'm happy to present it to you here. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Congresswoman Jackie Spear right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
Okay, can you, am I, you guys can hear me okay? All right, good. Um, well, welcome. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> and uh, congratulations on the book. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, how does it feel having it out there now? Because it was so theoretical for so long. You were writing it, you were creating it. Now it's out there. How is that? It has been a, a great experience, I must say. I, uh, I did the book launch in New York City, and I was on the Today Show. And it's pretty uh, amazing when you can, um, you know, kick off a book tour on, on the Today Show. But the, what I will remember most, they had these huge big pictures on the set, like five or six. And then they had a smaller one that kept changing. And all I will remember is seeing my children in one of the um, pictures. And that kind of, you know, made it all, made it all good. Having written the book now and having spent a fair amount of time uh, meeting with people around the country, I can say that it is the best thing that each and every one of us should do, is write our memoirs. Because I wrote it for a number of reasons. The most important, I wanted there to be something to leave to my kids. And, but what I, the gift that came to me as a result of writing it was the insights I learned about myself that I don't think I would have appreciated had it not been that I wrote the book. I always thought that I was so much more than my parents because my parents were blue collar, didn't go to college. They made sure that I got to go to college and went on to law school, and so I always thought that I was you know, a little more sophisticated and just a little bit more. And what I found out in writing the book, I am smack dab from them. <laughs> <laughs> I am them. <laughs> and, and that was a, a wonderful realization. And so in the acknowledgments, the first acknowledgment is to my parents, because I am who I am because of them. And it was, it was great to discover that in a way that was uh, purely by writing it all down. So I encourage you to write your stories. It's, it's very, very worthwhile. What was the writing process like for you? Was it, I, I mean, there are such painful moments and such beautiful moments. Was that process for you, was it cathartic? Was it therapeutic? What was it like to actually start doing it? putting it down? Well, it took a very long time to do this. I was going to do it at many other junctions in my life, but it wasn't until the 40th anniversary of Guyana was looming that I thought, well, this is probably the time. And so I started riding on the plane. Five hours one way, five hours the other way. <laughs> You need something to occupy your time. So that's how I, I started the process. And it actually went through, I had, uh, at one point, it, it had different names. It's kind of funny how the name kind of evolves. Um, originally, I wanted to name it, um, Will I Ever Dance Again? Because there's a, a point in the book where I talk, after I had been shot in Guyana, 
where I um, am airlifted out. There's a U.S. medevac plane waiting. I get pulled into the plane, and my whole right leg is blown up. And there's a, a tech there, health professional, who is you know, looking me over, starting the IVs, doing all the kinds of things to kind of keep me alive. And I looked at him, and I said, will I ever dance again? And he said, you will, and I want the first dance. I totally forgot about that. And three years ago, his daughter and son-in-law came to meet me in Washington and told me, uh, you know, that their, her dad was the one who helped save me. So I called and talked to him. And uh, he relayed the story to me. So, it, you know, it did go through various iterations. And... Uh, and I did have someone who helped me write it. So I wrote it, and then she made sense out of it. <laughs> How was that collaborative process? Are, are you, you seem like an easy person to collaborate with. Um, how did you like sort of that whole element of telling the story and then working with somebody on it? What was that like? It was actually pretty easy. I mean, because it was all there. I mean, I, was, I had written it. It just needed... Um, you know, to be refined. And she is the one who kind of put in my mind that I had been motivated by, you know, powerful women in my life. Uh, my grandmother being one, my mother being um, the other. And so, you know, that helped kind of fashion it. Uh, earlier, I had, had attempted to write it and... Um, it was entitled Five Bullets. <laughs> it went through. <laughs> that didn't go very far. <laughs> but there were five bullets. <laughs> if you've read it, you know. Um, can I read a couple of yes. uh, parts from it Please. and then we can go on to Yes. I'm just going to read you two little sections from the book that will help us kind of gather thoughts and questions. I was dying. It was just a matter of time. Lying behind a wheel of the airplane, bleeding out of the right side of my devastated body, I waited for the rapid shooting to stop. Then said my act of contrition, praying by rote for forgiveness. I used what little energy I had left to finish that prayer before the lights went out. But the lights didn't go out, and I slowly began to take stock of my situation. I was 28 years old, and I was about to die. My life would never be the one I had imagined. I'd never get married or become the mother of a boy and girl, or leave the world a better place, or gently pass when it was my time to go, surrounded by loved ones. Instead, my story was coming to an end on a dusty runway in the humid Guyanese jungle, thousands of miles from my home. I don't know if it's possible to articulate how urgently aware you become of the fleeting nature of your existence when you are confronted with its end. I lay there for what felt like an eternity. Somehow, through the encroaching darkness of my final thoughts, I saw my 87-year-old grandma, Emma, the tough, marvelous matriarch of my family. All I could think of was, 
I am not going to make grandma live through my funeral, not if I could help it. I couldn't bear the vision of her sitting in front of my casket suffering. If not for my reverence for her, I don't believe I would be alive today. She encouraged me to summon my will to move. Breathing heavily, I dragged my shattered body away from the wheel. Neither my doctors nor I could explain how I physically managed it, given my state. But I pulled myself up to my feet and stumbled around to take shelter in the baggage compartment. I survived. Survival against unfathomable odds can make every day that follows swell with a renewed sense of purpose, though not immediately and not for everybody. But with a hindsight of 40 years, I see that my baptism by gunfire guided me into the life I was meant to live, one of public service, one that would ignite the courage to make my voice heard, and one that would carry with it a visceral appreciation for each new day. The sentiment was far from my desperate thoughts at the time. Truth be told, it would have been far easier to have closed the box on Guyana long ago or to have pushed the memory away into the recesses of my mind. What happened in that jungle was a massacre, a nightmare. Though I survived, something within me did die on that airstrip, be it my innocence or my belief in the natural fairness of life. But I can't deny how radically that nightmare molded my perspective and my instincts and how much it has informed the woman I am today. We don't get to choose our formative moments. Very often, adversity and failure shape us more permanently than fortune and success. That has certainly been the case in my life. The major setbacks I've endured, and they have been many, have actually propelled me onward, each one reminding me how important it is to stand up again, as difficult as it may be, stronger and more steadfast. Pain yields action. It can introduce a fervor to speak out for those whose voices are not heard. Surviving Jonestown crystallized where I needed to focus my energy. It convinced me that I had a purpose. All I had to do was figure out how to fulfill it. And then this is one other section. In my life, I have been blessed with extraordinary love and brought to my knees by shattering loss. When I returned from Guyana, I decided that life gives everybody their share of misfortune. Mine had just come early in life and was a pretty extreme dose. But I was wrong. Life is not always fair. Life is just whatever you get. And while Guyana delivered incomparable trauma, it was not the worst day of my life. I was on my way to Sacramento to give a speech to the California Bankers Association. My district director, Judy Bloom, was driving us through a torrential downpour when I got the phone call. Jackie, my secretary began in a strange voice, there's been a call from the San Mateo police. Steve's been in an accident. 
Judy turned the car around immediately to drive back. I called the hospital, and they put me through to a friend of Steve's, the same surgeon who had operated on grandma's gallbladder. What happened, I asked, feeling a slight wave of panic. Jackie, it's, it's not good. You should just get here as soon as you can. I hadn't realized how serious it was until I heard the quiet devastation in his voice. We sped to Mills Hospital in San Mateo, where they left me in the waiting room with no further information. I tried to be patient, but finally I couldn't take it any longer. Let me see him, I demanded. He was in the ICU. They had done everything they could. Though his body was still warm, Steve was brain dead. Steve had been broadsided by a young man who had driven in that downpour, even though he knew his car had faulty brakes. He ran a red light at the intersection of Poplar and San Mateo Drive and plowed right into Steve's car. What was all the more twisted was that this young man worked at an auto parts shop. The details didn't compute at the time. It seemed too senseless, too reckless to be true. Word spread like wildfire among the physicians. It wasn't his hospital, but when he was hit and they were bringing him in, the police had repeated, he's one of our own, he's one of our own. A doctor there was trying to get me to pull the plug immediately, but I just couldn't. The whole scene didn't compute. Nothing made sense. The lights, the tubes, the machines. Everybody was waiting on me. All I could do was nod yes or shake my head no. I was in a genuine state of shock, staring down horrific emotional pain, slipping through it like quicksand with nothing to hold on to and nobody there to guide me through this nightmare. My soulmate was gone and part of me had gone with him. He was being kept alive by artificial means and they were waiting on me to end it. I shut off my heart and tried to figure out what needed to be done. Jackson. I needed to pick up Jackson from kindergarten. I had to call Steve's brother who was in Oregon so he could fly down and pay his respects. I went to pick up Jackson from school and we drove back to the hospital. He was dressed in his little karate uniform. I took his hand and we walked into the ICU together and stood in front of Steve's body. In the same way that the two of them had come and stood by my bed with the red rose. Jackson, I said quietly, you need to say goodbye to your daddy. He didn't understand what was happening, but he kissed him and looked back up at me, then asked if he could go to karate. Of course, I told him, and a friend took him away. Steve's brother, Ken, got on the first flight out and made it down a few hours later to say his goodbyes. I called Father Dan, who rushed to the hospital to give Steve his last rites. After that, everyone was just standing there, waiting for me to make perhaps the most difficult decision of my life. I kissed my husband goodbye. His lips were warm. Then I nodded to the doctor and walked out of the room. Prior to leaving for Guyana, you had a bad feeling. So much so, and we, we all have intuition, sometimes we honor it, sometimes we don't. You did. Um, 
Sort of. I mean, by leaving, leaving, you know, Ryan's will in his desk, writing your parents a note, making sure the deal on the condo wouldn't fall on their shoulders. How, and looking back, are you surprised how in tune you were with how the kind of danger you were facing? Well, I, as I look back at it, it reminds me that we always have to listen to our intuition. It's stronger and more um, accurate than we give it credit for. And, you know, this is 1978. I'm a young legal counsel to a congressman in Washington. There aren't that many women in senior positions on staffs at the time. And I just thought, if I didn't go on this trip, that it would, it would really be a huge step backwards for women on Capitol Hill. Now, there was a, a colleague who was um, a staff member on the committee who was a man who was making the trip. And so, you know, I, I sort of willed myself to, to ignore the feelings I had and the concerns I had. Why do you think we don't trust ourselves enough when we have a feeling about something? I think that... I think we doubt ourselves. Mm. I think it's, there's a lot of self-doubt that kind of flows through us. And, you know, the truth of the matter was there had never been a congressman, or congress member, I should say, who had been killed in the line of duty abroad before Congressman Ryan. And there's never been anyone since. So he certainly thought that there was this shield that protected him congressional shield that would protect him. And, you know, from where he stood and, you know, the history of the country would suggest that he was, he was not out of line thinking that. But I had spent the last weekend in, holed up in my office in um, the Capitol listening to all these audio tapes of interviews that had been taken of defectors of the People's Temple. So, I had such an intense uh, period of um, a concentrated study of it that was so unnerving. And they couldn't all be wrong. And that moment where, I mean, it's, that whole section is so tense that it was giving me a stomachache when I was reading it. This is so tense. Um, but the most chilling detail is when you had to have a, a look at, at Jim Jones' sideburns. And it sounds like a silly thing, but in the context of the book, you realize how serious it was, and your heart sinks when you realize something. Can you just talk a little bit about that? So one of the um, people that we interviewed is Debbie Blakey, who actually lives um, in this area, in the Oakland Hills, I think. And she had, her brother was Larry Layton, and she had defected from the People's Temple in Guyana um, through the embassy. And she had you know, told her story about what was going on there, which was um, very consistent with what we were hearing from others. And she said to me that Jim Jones dyed his sideburns. So, of course, the first thing I do when I meet Jim Jones is look at his sideburns, and they were dyed. So I, I um, sort of was confirming what 
uh, all the other things that she had told me. So if the smallest detail was true, that meant everything else was probably, the big stuff was true to me. Right. Yeah. One of my students in, in class last year at St. Mary's um, had quit the crew team. And she said that her friends were supposed to quit with her, and they decided at the last second not to. And she said, well, you know, they, they have no trouble drinking the Kool-Aid. And I said to her, I'm just curious, do you know where that expression comes from? Because it's such an incorrect use of it anyway. And she didn't know. And I was happy to read in your book that you object to it being used in the common speak. Um, as someone who's Jewish, I've always felt that saying, oh, my best friend is such a clean Nazi, right? I've, I've objected to the use of the term Nazi, or, right? Can you talk a bit about why you feel that way? And do you think it has something to do with desensitizing with the actual event that it's named after? I can't tell you the number of times people have said it directly to me. It's unimaginable. <laughs> I can't even believe that. Without knowing, and, and I always, I can't help myself. I, I can't be polite about it. I says, please don't use that phrase um, in front of me. So the reason why it offends me so much is that, first of all, people don't understand where it comes from. They don't understand um, the nature of the event or the tragedy of that event. And none of those people drank the Kool-Aid voluntarily. They were all murdered. They did not commit suicide. They had been so brainwashed. They had lost their independent thinking process. They had um, been victims of mind control. They had been emotionally and physically and sexually beaten down so that there was nowhere for them to go. And they had armed guards standing around, evidently, as they were uh, forcing people to drink the Kool-Aid and then injecting the cyanide into these babies and young children. I feel like the book is a really great memorial for Congressman Ryan because he was such a unique individual. I didn't know a lot about him. I was much younger at the time. Um, but he was a really, he actually, he really cared. He really believed in listening to people and looking out for people. Um, what was it like to know him the way you did? He seemed like such a special man. So he was a, a mentor to me, and it happened so... Um, so you know, part of my worldview is that there's a plan for each of us. Sometimes we're not privy to it, and it's not until years later we say, ah, oh, now I understand why. Uh, the, the likelihood of me getting connected with then-Assemblyman Leo Ryan was, you know, very remote, but... You know, my parents get this uh, letter in the mail soliciting campaign fronts for his re-election bid. And I, why would I take this card, fill it out, and say, I have no money, I'm a high school kid, but I'd be happy to volunteer. I, I do that, I get a phone call one Saturday morning, and it's his campaign asking me to come to this address. My mom gives me permission to drive the car. I'm 16. And <laughs> I drive to this address. And 
it's Leo Ryan's home. And there is his entire campaign uh, committee meeting for his reelection bid. And they interview me. Well, you know, as I look back at it, they uh, were interviewing me to see if I made the cut because they were creating a group of young girls called Ryan Girls. <laughs> it's painful for me to tell you this. <laughs> um, and there's actually a picture in the book of me in my Ryan girl outfit. This is 1966. Beatlemania is crazy. So they asked me a few questions. Okay, go to this, this dress shop in San Bruno, and you can, pick out, you can pick up your outfit. So this outfit was a black turtleneck shirt, a black and white houndstooth miniskirt, black tights, thick, you know, black tights, the same fabric as the um, turtleneck, white go-go boots, <laughs> and then a little, you know, British bobby hat that matched the skirt. <laughs> and we went as a group to grocery stores and events and pass out literature and were, you know, but that was my first experience with politics and with then Assemblyman Ryan. And then, you know, the, the things that happened along the way were just part of a plan. I'm then at UC Davis. Go Aggies. Go Aggies. I'm a freshman. I'm in a small dorm of 30 girls. One of my um, dorm mates is at a seminar one evening. Turns out Assemblyman Ryan is speaking to this political science class. He turns to her and says, do you happen to know Jackie Spear? So oh, she's in my dorm. Gee, you know, I'd, I'd like to, you know, check in with her. She goes to the library. I never studied at the library. I'm in the library. She says, you know, Leo Ryan's here. We're all going to go to this little place after the seminar. Do you want to come? I said, oh, okay. So I show up there, he's got many of the students in the class, and he looks to me and says, well, what are you doing, Jackie? And I says, I'm studying political science. He says, you're not going to learn anything about political science in a classroom. You should come and intern in my office. So that's how it really all began. And so I learned a lot from just observing him. And probably the most important thing I learned from him was that you have to be an experiential legislator, because that's what he was whether it was going down to Watts to teach as a substitute teacher after the Watts riots or spending a week at Folsom Prison. So it has really informed the way I do my job now. Um, I actually, when I was in the state legislature, um, spent the night at the um, uh, woman's prison at um, Chowchilla when I was the chair of the Women's Caucus in the state legislature, in the state assembly, we went to the women's prison in Frontera and, and did a whole hearing on battered woman syndrome. More recently, I spent the night at a homeless shelter in my district. Um, so it has been very helpful to me in terms of doing my job. And I guess what I learned from, from him was a, a real sense of irreverence for whatever is being told to you. That you... You've got to find it out for yourself. 
It's got to be, you've got to be slightly cynical about what you're being told. I also feel like you recognize a kindred spirit in the sense that you both put people first. Well, there's no question that he felt compelled to do something in the case of these um, people who had joined the People's Temple because they were constituents of his. And that gets lost oftentimes in the discussion because they were young adult children of constituents of his. And they had gotten involved in the church. It was this idyllic, uh, utopian world where uh, whites and blacks would live together and pool their resources together and create this commune. And the family members came to him and said, you know, I'm really worried about my young adult child and what can you do about it? But what I love about it is that it shows that your congressmen do listen to you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we feel that in recent events that we've seen in the last few years, it feels like it's, sometimes it falls on deaf ears. And he was listening. Mm -hmm. He really did. He didn't need to go on that fight, but he had to. He was compelled to. And I just, I love that about him Mm -hmm. and you. Um, You mentioned in the book that you don't feel you ever properly mourned him. Did the book help you? achieve that, or is that something that you don't think you'd ever actually do? You know, I was fighting for my life, right? Uh, And I think, you know, I never got to go to the funeral. I I never um, was able really to to come to grips with his passing. Um, I'll tell you something quite sweet that happened Um, just very recently, I always thought that he wasn't properly recognized for um, being this this great legislator who, you know, put his constituents first and who kind of represented the best in um, being engaged with your constituents. And so I wanted something in the Capitol to kind of reflect him and, and to remember him. And so I went to uh, then leader Pelosi and, and talked to her about that. And she says, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And she says, we can, we can name the cloakroom after him. And I thought, oh, my God, I was thinking, you know, some closet somewhere, right? Some, <laughs> some ante room, you know, near the Foreign Affairs Committee. So as it evolved, it became named the Gabby Giffords Leo Ryan Democratic Cloakroom. And we uh, actually uh, named it and had a ceremony uh, earlier this year, and Gabby was there. And it was, uh, it was you know, very special. And it and now there's a, a plaque in the cloakroom that is um, that we unveiled that that talks about um, all those who you know walk through this door into this cloakroom should never forget that your job is to represent the people that elected you um, because Gabby of course was doing a Congress on your corner when she was shot and Congressman Ryan was protecting his flock in the way that he thought was appropriate when he was killed. His daughter worked with you 
Uh, I'm sure, right. Is she still? I'm not sure if she does. No, she's, uh, she worked, uh, Aaron Ryan, one of his daughters, was on my staff in Sacramento for a period of years and then came back to Washington and worked in my office for probably eight years and then decided she wanted to come back to Sacramento. So she's now retired. Mm. Um, I wrote a quote down from St. Thomas Aquinas and I wanted to get it right because I'm in a church. I don't want to get the quote of wrong. Of course. Um, but it's about friendship. And so St. Thomas Aquinas said that in friendship we find completeness in one another. Friendship brings out the best in a person through forgetfulness of self. And I feel that your, one of the clues and one of the keys to your survival has been friendship. Um, and you, you have kept the same friends for your whole life, which is no small feat. Um, can you talk a bit about how important your friends have been throughout your life? So the book is you know, all about resilience, and I talk about the three Fs, um, family, friends, and faith. Those are the three components that have really been the forces that have helped me get through you know, all of the uh, ups and downs. The friends, I, I always told myself that the way to stay in check and not, you know, somehow, you know, think that you are some big hotshot because you got elected to office was to retain the same friends you had before you got elected. And so I have a group of friends that um, have been a part of my life since my 20s. I have a group of friends that um, became friends after... Um, I lost my husband, and we created a married widows club that nobody wanted to join, and uh, uh, it's all part of paying it forward. So there's a group of another 12 or 13 women that um, we get together and support each other, and then there's a group of yoga girls, um, and we, for being really good, we have yoga every weekend. We're supposed to have it on Sunday. I don't know if it's going to happen this Sunday, but um, so they have all been very powerful forces in my life. When I remarried, um, it was my group of girlfriends who planned the wedding because I had no time. <laughs> yeah. you, um, you never mention PTSD by name in the book, but you do talk about what gets left behind in terms of the scars of, of a disaster like that. Um, with PTSD, we always think about you know, what you're left with. But really, you talk about what's been taken away from you at the end. Um, would you mind just talking about that a little bit in terms of having been a survivor of, of um, you know, what you've gone through? So I now uh, chair the Military Personnel Subcommittee on the Armed Forces Committee in the, um, in the House. And so I'm, I have great reverence for all of our service members uh, who are deployed and deployed and deployed and who come back deeply scarred. So I experienced for, you know, 30 seconds maybe, 45 seconds, what they are living with week after week after week. Um, and it, it affected me in a way that I will never not um, you know, be impacted by 
21 gun salutes or cars backfiring or fireworks going off. I mean, it sends me into that place. Um, but what, what we don't appreciate about um, PTSD, now they don't even call it PTSD, it's now called PTS. Mm. Um, um, is that we, we don't have a solution yet. I mean, we, I just, I had a doctor uh, researcher in my office just this week who's been researching it and trying to come up with a, a pill that you can take. It would be great. But it's also, <laughs> interestingly enough, what he said is it's associated with getting deep REM sleep. And the people that suffer from PTSD or PTS never get that deep REM sleep. And so that has a lot to do with how they, they keep reliving these experiences over and over again. Um, I keep thinking about I mean, of course, I'm a, a gun violence prevention advocate, and I have no tolerance for assault weapons in our society. I think it's um, outrageous that they continue to be legal, not here in California, but in places across the country. But the ravaging of the body that happens as a result of gun violence um, is incomprehensible. And I was talking to a Washington Post reporter this week who's doing a, a series, I think it's going to be video, on members of Congress who have either been shot or been affected by gun violence. So um, Steve Scalise, uh, Jim Langevin, uh, myself, Diane Feinstein, Lucy McBath. There's a, a group of us on one level or another have been impacted by gun violence. And, you know, we walk away with it, from it, differently. Steve Scalise um, is very much a supporter of the NRA. Um, you know, I clearly have um, issues with them. But we've all been severely impacted by it, physically severely impacted. Gabby Giffords still has a difficult time and she works very hard at being able to articulate what she's thinking. Steve Scalise walks with a cane. Um, I have a deeply scarred body. It took me a long time to come to um, an acknowledgement that this is what it is and get over it. Um, so I, I always, in my mind, think of Las Vegas. So 57 people lost their lives in Las Vegas. 500 people were shot in Las Vegas. Um, so uh, it, it, it's a has a very destructive force, emotionally, physically, that, you know, is with you forever. 
know, last night there was the incident in yesterday in, in New Zealand. Um, in a place where they only have had, what, 37 killings in the last period of years, and now they had 49 yeah. in yeah. one day. It's unspeakable. And it, it seems like they're snapping to action immediately, like, this is what we need and to the, do. And the prime minister, what, what did she say today? We're going to get these guns off the streets. Right. right. And they will. And Australia did that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my next question is, why is it so here. hard? <laughs> I mean, is, so, has it become so tangled here that we can't, we can't, things can't be expedited because of the tanglements that we... Well, the interesting uh, court decision in Connecticut that will allow the Sandy Hook parents to now sue the manufacturers um, is going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, the NRA is totally in bed with these manufacturers. They, they feed off of each other. Um, and the NRA's done an incredible job. Give them a lot of credit for instilling fear. You know, you know, the, the book by um, Carl Bernstein, it's called Fear, in which the president is quoted as saying, greatest part of power is fear. I mean, instilling fear in people is the greatest motivator. NRA, NRA did an excellent job of instilling fear in their members that people were going to take their guns away. Now you have all of these gun manufacturers who are going bankrupt now because no one has that fear that they're going to lose their guns because Donald Trump's president. It's kind of twisted how things happen, right? Uh, so here's the optimism I have. It's going to all change. As soon as we kick out the um, ossifying baby boomers in Congress, which I am one, <laughs> <laughs> and replace them with the Gen Xers and Ys and Zs and Millennials, that's all going to change. When you grow up having active shooter drills instead of fire drills, you have a different perspective on guns. The Parkland kids were remarkable. You know, they could have um, somehow gone into a, you know, a, a, a state of absolute depression after the shooting and been in mourning for months or years. What did they do for the three weeks after the massacre? They marched to Tallahassee. And in three weeks, in a conservative state legislature that the NRA owned, they were able to get a ban on bump, on bump stocks, to get um, three-day waiting period for guns, and background checks for all guns. So that generation is, I have great faith that it's going to be very different in short order. I just hope I'm still alive to see it. <laughs> <laughs> what was remarkable about Parkland was that the, you know, it activated the activism in them. But also what was stunning for me was how grown-ups 
treated them so poorly. Um, Grown-ups in Congress, in the Senate, speaking out against them um, on television, that they were so maligned and they were just kids who had just been through this traumatic event. I thought that was unspeakable. Well, I, th I think what, you know, I, Congress is kind of irrelevant sometimes. <laughs> Actually, a lot of the time. But <laughs> in this case, they were just noise. I mean, they have their march, the biggest march that Washington's ever seen. Um, all these other groups grew out of it. Moms Demand Action grew out of seeing young people get massacred. There are now six million moms across the country in a couple of years. So it's motiv they've motivated a lot of people. Now you had kids playing hooky today um, across the country for climate change. I mean, they are, they're doing good. I like your optimism. Have you, have you always been an optimistic person given what the things you've been through and how you've, how you've survived and picked yourself up? Is that due to an inherent innate optimism that's in your, in your DNA? I think I am an optimist. Um, but I'm oftentimes a pessimist too. <laughs> uh, there were times in my life where I did not want to get out of bed. And I would give myself permission to stay in bed and just commit to myself that I would get up the next day. And then would get up the next day. So it's important that we, we don't beat ourselves up as much as I think we all do from time to time. But I am an optimist. The pessimist makes no such deal, right? <laughs> the pessimist doesn't yeah. make any kind of, right? Yeah, probably so. <laughs> um, can you talk a bit about how you say that you compartmentalize a lot, and that's also been a surviving technique for you? Can you just speak a little bit about that? Um, you know, there's so much stress in our lives that it could easily consume us. Um, I'm really good at kind of compartmentalizing it and, um, and, and sometimes just putting it to the side. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book that I almost didn't talk about in the book was something I did a really good job of comp compartmentalizing. Um, and in the end, I decided to write about it because it's another example of how we try to um, push away or, or um, somehow conceal things that are, we feel are uh, shameful. I was molested by my grandfather when I was five, six, and seven years old. And I didn't really connect the dots until I was writing the book, when I was trying to understand why is it I have such a passion um, and such an outrage around issues like sexual assault in the military and sexual assault on college campuses and sexual harassment and seeing people like Epstein get away with um, you know, abusing all of these girls. I, it, it, I, I go into a, you know, an internal rage and I realized that it all um, dated back to how I was treated as a small child. 
and how you know that something's wrong, but you can't quite figure out what it is. So, um, you know, the, the issue of incest and um, sexual abuse in families is so much more common than we ever are willing to talk about. But it's, you know, easily 20%. So that's why I was, I was an absolute hawk uh, when my kids were young. And I was a single mom, and I, you know, was very, uh, very watchful. My daughter, who's now 24, um, read, reads the book finally. took her months. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she says, oh, now I understand, Mom, why you wouldn't let me go next door. We, had a, we have a cabin in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and the couple that have the place right next door, he has a little theater and wanted you know, Stephanie to come over and watch movies. And I said, no way. Was, oh, is that why you wouldn't, didn't want me to go over there? I said, yeah, that's why I didn't want you to go over there. So how, did your kids not know everything that was in the book? Was it the first time when they read it? Was that the first time for them hearing about certain things? Uh, yeah, certain things they didn't know about. I mean, nothing really significant. I mean, they didn't know about, I hadn't talked to them I might have talked to him briefly about, maybe my son, I might have talked to about um, this, the um, sexual abuse by my grandfather. Um, there were some things that were new to them. Um, your husband sounds like a cool guy. Yeah. <laughs> he, I, think, I feel like he, that sort of Midwestern element to him, has maybe helped you learn how to relax a little bit in, in times, because you have a very stressful job. Um, and you never stopped working. Have you found that that has really calmed you down? No, he's, he's a, um, a, great, um, a great stabilizer for yeah. me. And, and for the kids. I mean, when, um, when I met Barry, uh, you know, our, our lives, yeah, we were struggling somewhat, but, you know, we were still above water, and my parents were there, and my friends, but... Um, he brought that whole Midwestern... I had never dated a Midwesterner. <laughs> I met Barry. Barry, uh, if you haven't read the book yet, um, was a confirmed bachelor when I met him. It was a blind date. He really didn't want to go out on a date with me. Um, I really didn't want to go out on a second date with him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, his, and his passion in life is fly fishing. Does, do I look like I fly fish? Um, <laughs> when we were, when we were um, engaged, he got me the whole gear and this cute little... I, I used it once. <laughs> but, but anyway, so... Um, but there is, a, there is a different persona in the Midwest. And, and without being casting aspersions on our Western culture, I mean, there, there's a... Um, a simpleness and a um, no frills kind of nature to people. You don't lock your doors, you don't lock your cars, uh, and you just live a very simple, simple life. And so, you know, I've, I've learned that. And, and the result of 
Barry coming into our lives is that the kids learned this, had this whole new experience of, you know, living in a log cabin in the summer and fishing and, um, you know, riding in ATVs and, you know, doing very natural all-American things that they just wouldn't have had but for Barry. And Barry adopted both of them, which is also very special. To be a fly fisherman, you have to be very patient. Um, would, you, would you consider yourself to be a patient person? or He's not all that patient. He's not? No. <laughs> no, he's not. He's patient when he's out um, you know, on, on the streams, but he gets very impatient when I'm a minute late. Um, just getting back to Imagine when I'm 10 minutes late. Why? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, getting back to friendship, I'm very curious to know, in your opinion, what is the secret to being a good friend? Uh, being there. You know, and I tell this to Stephanie because she's very anxious to um, you know, develop these friendships because she sees how strong they are in my life. I said, you, you have to be there. You have to nurture them. It's like a garden. You have to um, cultivate them and nurture them and water them and, and be there. So it, it requires an investment of time and resources. So many moments in the book, what someone did for you, you end up doing for somebody else. It's really beautiful. Paying it forward is such a great uh, way to live your life because it bounces back in many beautiful ways. Um, you have, uh, you're, you're so strong and you're so resilient and you care about people and you have conviction and integrity and an enormous heart. Um, this is not really a question, but I think you'd be a remarkable president. <laughs> Don't you have enough choices now? <laughs> It's funny, when the book first came out, there was a lot of speculation that I must be running for president because that's what everyone does, <laughs> write the book. I'm not running for president. But the timing was suspicious. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, had the thought ever crossed your mind? Well, no, actually not until some of my colleagues started running thinking, they're running for president? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not naming any I names. I really want you to name names. <laughs> um, I, I will say that I, um, you know, one of, one of my, um, I think, uh, faults or shortcomings is that, and I think it's a shortcoming that lots of us have, never thinking you're good enough. Um, and or it's not your time. I love this new freshman class of um, women in particular. I mean, they're, they're rock stars already, and, and they're not playing by any set of rules, and they're not waiting their turn, and it's, it's great to observe. But, so I've always, I've, I've suffered a little, not suffered, but it's been one of my, my shortcomings, I think. They're an electrifying class. They're this, this particular class of freshmen. Um, 
they all have names now. You know, there's a squad, and there's the Fab Four, and the <laughs> yeah. There's four new women from Pennsylvania, so they're the Fab Four, and then the squad. You know who the squad is, right? AOC and um, uh, Presley and uh, Talib and Omar. They literally are rock stars. They were on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah, <laughs> Rolling Stone. I mean, you, you name it. They, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, there's so many. So many of us who kind of live in um, Never Never Land for you know decades there, and uh, and these these stars are just you know pretty exciting, and they're so smart. They're really very smart. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they deserve all the attention they're getting. I guess getting back to optimism, I, I feel like I need your help on this one. Yeah. Um, there, there are times where uh, the news becomes unbearable to me because it's like the, the dark side keeps winning. The dark empire has assembled and, is, and feels sometimes like they, are, they can't be defeated. Um, it, it, and I like hearing that, that you think there's hope. Are we going to get this guy out of us? <laughs> I feel like I need to know that you think there's hope um, on the horizon because it's been, it's been a tough couple of years. You know, I've, I've done a lot of town halls since um, the November 2016 election. One of the very first one I, I had, I knew we had lots of problems. Um, it was in Half Moon Bay. And if you've ever been to Half Moon Bay, you know it's like 12,000 people. Uh, there was a, a brand new middle school... Uh, basketball, um, it's not a stadium, it's a basketball gym, basketball gym, that was about to open, so they were going to allow us to use it. There were 2,000 people that showed up for this town hall. Wow. So I've become a political psychologist in the last two years, because there's so there has been so much angst. Um, I think everyone should be much more relaxed with the Democrats retaking the House, because at least the checks and balances are back um, in place. And the fact that the Senate now has voted twice to, um, on the national emergency and on um, Syria against the President's wishes suggests that that's starting to um, break up a little bit. So um, those are all reasons to be optimistic. I, I also think that um, we're, we're stronger than you think. We're tougher than you think. And the reason, and we've, and we've withstood bad presidents before. Maybe not as bad. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not as bad. But I will tell you, the one thing that keeps, keeps me up a little bit is that we have all these laws on the books that don't get enforced because we don't have enough staff to do the enforcing. Paul Manafort would not be spending the next seven years, well, minus good time, you know, three and a half years, in prison, 
but for the fact that there was a ledger that was found in Ukraine with how many of her millions of dollars that was attributed to him. So all the tax evasion, all the bank fraud, all the things that he was engaged in was just common, ordinary, garden variety tax fraud that we don't have the resources to go after. I came home after they announced the, um, the sentence, and my husband says, we're not paying our taxes anymore. <laughs> Being foolish. <laughs> so I worry that our laws that we have on the books aren't being enforced. I can tell you, without telling you, <laughs> that the president is probably going to be found out to be um, a tax evader, a bank fraudster. Um, we already know that he's used the foundation inappropriately. I mean, but it's all that garden variety stuff that never, never would have been observed but for the fact. Will you take a few questions sure. from the audience? Cool. Um, if you have a question for the congressman, you can. Yeah. So, you know, that was one of the most stunning statements that Michael Cohen made in the open hearing that everyone has taken notice of. Here's President Trump's biggest failing is that he never took Civics 101. You know, he somehow believes the Justice Department is his attorney and that the military is his military. And I think he overestimates what he will be able to do um, under those circumstances. Now, will some people, you know, try to do mischief? They may, but they're also going to go to jail and probably to prison because we are a country of laws. And so I, I think his, his interest in inciting um, violence is is not going to be um, at all embraced by who he thinks would embrace it. I mean, right, yes. So I think one of the easy fixes will be, able, will be for people to be able to buy into Medicare at age 50 or if you have um, you know, a serious illness and you're even younger than 50. So that, I think, is a first step. We've, we've got to reform pharmaceuticals and bring down those costs. And the interesting thing now is, is that you know, all the pharmaceutical companies, when they come in to meet, 
are recognizing it. I mean, they certainly don't want to go as far as we probably are going to take them, but they recognize that that has got to be part of the solution. And, you know, people say, oh, what Medicare for all is going to cost so much money. Well, yeah, everything costs money. But the truth of the matter is we have a lousy health care system. We pay more money and we have poorer outcomes than any of the other industrialized countries. So we've got to fix it. And I think, you know, the, the, we've got to look at the Germans. You know, they keep a, an open market so it's not just run by the government, and that may be the solution that we should look at. Other questions? Yeah, in the back. One of the concerns that I have is that so many of the civil servants that with judicial appointments. Um, give uh, Mitch McConnell credit for being very savvy at holding down the Obama appointments, um, not allowing uh, his nominee for the Supreme Court to even be considered, and got away with it. So, yeah, that, that is a problem. They'll be there forever. Except, there's conversations starting to um, happen now that I think will get traction, to expand the number of judges in the Supreme Court. Mm. Nine's not magical. And to not make them for life. So one of the things I think we've learned is that uh, they are not apolitical. Um, Brett Kavanaugh, to me, is so ill-prepared to have the temperament to be a justice that um, his display before that Senate Judiciary Committee was um, repugnant. And that alone should have prevented him from being considered, and yet he got swept in. I have become friendly with Christine Blasey Ford, and... She had all of her medical records prepared to be reviewed by the FBI when they took that one week period of time. Never got a phone call. So, you know, the system, as the president says from time to time, is rigged. And in that case, um, it was regrettably not one of our finest hours. So uh, that was the issue on judiciary. So I think we're going to start looking at that differently. And then your other question was on civil servants. You know, we love to bash federal employees, state employees, they, they, this whole concept that, you know, um, there's too many of them, government's fat. Uh, the truth is, it's a, such a small percentage of the population, and they work really hard. Um, and we don't appreciate it until all of a sudden the FAA hasn't 
actually approved the software on the 737 MAX and, you know, people may be losing their lives, right? I mean, think about it, not to bring the gun issue up again, but two planes fall out of the air and we ground the planes, right? How many lives have we lost from gun violence in any one year? And we don't think twice about that. So uh, I think that I, I, um, I'm haunted by the government contractors that never got paid. And we've got to do something about that moving forward. We, we should never be in a situation where we shut down the government. That is, it's amoral. And it should be coming out of Congress's hides. We have time for two more questions. So, yeah. All right, three. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Kevin. You did a strong champion of consumer affairs for some reason. Uh, we're seeing the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau being completely gutted. Uh, can Congress take a stronger role? And what is it really been a very important agency in terms of protecting consumers in a wide variety of issues? I'm sorry, what was the question? Uh, the question is, are you, is Congress going to take more of yes. the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the administration's efforts with that? So it, it has been gutted, and yet it's responsible for returning, I don't know, $12, $15 billion to consumers uh, on so many levels. Uh, it, and that's why it's so important that we have the checks and balances, because while the administration is trying to gut it, we have the um, Financial Services Committee under Maxine Waters um, taking on... Uh, taking on Wells Fargo, and another one of our star freshmen, Katie Porter from Southern California, who, who just took on the CEO of Wells Fargo. So yes, I think that we're going to at least keep that in check for the next 18 months, and then we've got to revive it. Uh, it's such an important um, component for uh, our personal protection. One more question. Yeah. Oh, right here. Yes. Yeah. We do two. We do two. We'll do two. Yeah. So, uh, Jackie, uh, you have been one of my lifelong heroes. I want to say that uh, the good Lord and your guts saved you so you could help save us. And thank you so much to the Montclair Bookstore and to you for allowing me to thank you personally for all you've done for all of us in this country. Thank you very much. Mm. Yeah, I had only audio taped that and send it to my kids. <laughs> <laughs> right here in the front. Yes, um, I'm very concerned about um, the condition of Roving Way and its down 5,000 cuts. And I'm just wondering what, if anything, can be done because so often these cuts are state by state by state. And I think it was just. I think it might have been Texas, I may be wrong, where something just happened where there's no...
Louisiana, isn't it? Oh, it's your state. <laughs> we need to go back there and vote. Huh? <laughs> but if there's anything on a federal level that can be done to stop this, because there's, it, there's so little, it seems like there's so little left in it. So, you know, what I hate most about Congress more than anything else is the hypocrisy. And it goes on all the time there. Donald Trump supported Planned Parenthood all his life until he became president. And now, you know, he couldn't be more extreme. Well, maybe Pence is more extreme. Um, so uh, it's one of those issues that I, I think we're okay. And if we're not okay, I can guarantee you the Supreme Court will go through a dramatic change almost immediately. That could be the tipping point. That, if, if, if the Supreme Court took any action to undo Roe versus Wade, that could be the tipping point to do a wholesale change in the Supreme Court through a constitutional amendment that would go like wildfire through this country, I think. Um, I think we're okay. I actually think we're okay. You're right about the thousand cuts. Some, some states, some, you know, like one or two doctors throughout the entire state. Here, I'm going to tell you a story about my daughter's um, uh, college roommate. She gets pregnant. They're in school in Missouri. There's only one um, abortion clinic, Planned Parenthood facility in all of Missouri, and it's in St. Louis, which is two hours away. So she drives two hours to at the clinic. Um, she then has a three-day waiting period, so she then drives back. And then in three days, she doesn't get to go back because there is a um, waiting list. So her mother, who is anti-choice and lives in Illinois, drives down, picks up her daughter, takes her back to Illinois to get the abortion. So, you know, anti-choice until it happens to you, right? Um, but there are, I guess my point there is, is that while in, you know, there's only one clinic in, in some places, there are others typically nearby. Um, and then you have, I mean, we do have the morning after pill. We have, you know, there's a number of abortifacients now that you can take at different points in a pregnancy um, that don't even require you um, to go to a doctor. Well, the gag rule is, is a problem, but we somehow survive. You know, it, it, it troubles me, but it doesn't um, create the angst that I see on your face right now, so I want you to get rid of that, okay? <laughs> I do think that, um, I think we're okay. But we've got, we, we can't allow Pence to become president. And we have to make sure that Donald Trump is not reelected. Yeah. I have one last question. Yeah. Right
So I want to share my, my favorite quotation that's anonymous. Life should not be a journey with the intention of arriving in a well-preserved body. <laughs> it should be totally used up, totally worn out, chocolate in one hand, martini in the other, screaming, woohoo, what a ride. <laughs> A remarkable life indeed, and a remarkable woman. Buy Undaunted. Go to your bookstore and say, hey, do you have it? And if they say no, say order it for me, okay? Support your bookstore. And speaking of support, thank you as always for your support of Stereo Embers, the podcast. We are available on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you're on iTunes, hey, why not subscribe? And of course, we would love a rating from you. Uh, You know, a couple of stars. Five if you have them. Now, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Embers Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor. And you can email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com for all of your, uh, you know, various inquiries. Maybe there's somebody you want me to get on the program. Uh, Well, look, send in your dream list of people you want me to interview, and I'll see what I can do. Okay? All right. By the way, before we go, I want to give a special shout-out to Jake Dawson, who recorded the Jackie Spear interview without him. That thing would have been in the ether. He uh, recorded it. He produced it. He compressed it. He made it sound awesome. And uh, an enormous thanks to him for coming through for the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. All right. Let's close things off with Winter Sleep. This is a song called America. Enjoy it. And I will see you next week right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Don't be sad Think of the time we had The moment's truer now You love to dance But you don't know how